All right, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verse 11 to 15. The conversion of Lydia. Acts 16, 11 to 15. This is the inerrant, the infallible, life-giving word of God. The Holy Spirit writes, So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Semothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we were outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to a woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Back when I was a uh, Baptist pastor, I was a a Baptist pastor for about three years before I became a Reformed pastor. And back when I was a Baptist pastor, I was sitting in my office one day doing devotions and prayer. And I decided I would start uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's a great book, and uh, I thought I'd uh, start there, reading through. And it's interesting how every time you read the Bible, just different things you know pop out to you, or different things really mean something to you at uh, at uh, various times. Yeah, whenever I'm reading through the Bible, there's times, um, perhaps in the Old Testament, where you think, "Have I ever read this?" Well, of course, you know you've you know read dozens of times, but it perhaps didn't um, stick out to you. Well, as I was reading 1 Corinthians that day, verse 16 stuck out to me. And in verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, I baptized the household of Stephanas. And I was sitting in my chair, and I thought, why don't I talk like that? I would never say as a Baptist pastor, I baptized his household or her household. Unless I perhaps knew a family for 20 years, and just as their children grew and came to faith... Uh, and I just so happened to baptize them, but it just didn't make any sense. I actually called up a, uh, a friend of mine who was another Baptist pastor, and I said, why don't we talk like this? Uh, Paul is talking about, about that household, that household, that household. Why, how come we can never say that? And even if we could say that, it would be an extraordinary thing. It's not a, it would not be an, a, an ordinary thing for a Baptist pastor to walk around saying that I baptized all of the, all of these households and to use that household language. But as I came to the Bible, household baptisms, uh, it's not like there's only one verse with one household baptism. You see it several times. It's part of the the norm in in Scripture. Uh, We see this with some regularity. So we saw Lydia and her, her whole household is baptized along with her. The Philippian jailer and his household were all baptized. Stephanus and his whole household is baptized together. 
And even beyond baptisms, the, the household unit, believing together, doing things together, uh, is spoken of elsewhere. For example, in Acts 10 with Cornelius' household, and Acts 18 with Crispus' household. And so I, I begin to think, this is, this is interesting. And it's very Abrahamic. It's very Old Covenant. And, of course, you know, in my mind back then, I had a, a more of a disjointed view between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I began to think, you know, children have always been in, in the covenant of God. Children have always been part of, of God's covenant people. And I began to wonder, you know, as the, as the New Covenant is now here, and as things are getting bigger and better, the writer of Hebrews says the New Covenant is better covenant, bigger Holy Spirit's being poured out. And I started wondering, why would we kick the kids out of the covenant? If they've always been in the covenant of people of God for thousands of years, and now everything's getting bigger and better in the New Covenant, why would the covenant community shrink? Why would we lose the children? Um, again, for thousands of years, children of believing parents have always been part of God's people. And as I began to read with fresh eyes the New Testament, I began to see it's just presupposed by the biblical authors that the children are still part of God's covenant people, the children of believers. Herman Bobbink, one of the uh, great Reformed theologians, he said, children are a blessing and heritage to the Lord, Psalm 127. They are always counted along with their parents and included with them. Together they prosper. Together they serve the Lord. The parents must pass on to the children the acts and the ordinances of God. The covenant of God with its benefits and blessings perpetuates itself from child to child, and from generation to generation. And so, as Bavik was saying, children, thousands of years, they've been part of God's covenant people. Whenever you read about them in the Old Covenant, it's the parents and the children doing things together. Nehemiah chapter 8, they're standing before the preaching of, of the law. And, and, and who's there? It says, the men, the women, and those who could understand. That's the children. And they were all standing there, listening intently to the words of, of God. Um, and it's interesting, you know, as the Old Testament is speaking about this coming new covenant, the, the, the Old Testament prophesied and said that there's going to be a new covenant coming one day. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, elsewhere we see this. And it's interesting that in Jeremiah 32, he's talking about this coming new covenant. And he says, it is for you and your children. And it's interesting, so as, as a Baptist, Baptists believe that children are not born into the covenant community of God. They have to become later into the covenant community of God. But it's interesting that as the Old Testament speaks about this coming new testament, or this, this coming new covenant, it says this is for you and for your children. In fact, when you look at the Old Testament, children are always with their parents. And if children are somehow not going to be with their parents, it's actually made very explicit. So, for example, in Genesis 50, verse 7 and 8, 1 Samuel 1, 21 to 22, whenever children are not with their parents, the Bible makes it explicit that they're not there. If, if the Bible doesn't make it explicit, 
then they're there and they're assumed to be there. B.B. Um, Warfield, one of the great Princeton theologians, he said, God established his church in the days of Abraham. I would actually say even earlier than that. But, and he said he put children into them. He put children into the church. And they must remain in the church until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. And what Warfield, what Warfield is saying is that for thousands of years, uh, throughout the Old Covenant, children were part of the community of God, part of the people of God. They were covenant members. They got the sacrament of circumcision. They, they partook as they got older of Passover and so on, and all of these, these various things. And he said, we're, we're never told that the kids aren't here anymore. Like it, there, there's, there's no verse that says kids are kicked out of the covenant community or kids are no longer included. We don't have an explicit verse like that. And so it's only natural then to assume that as the kids have always been part of God's covenant community, they remain so until God explicitly says that's no longer the case. But he's never said that. For after thousands of years, it would make no sense, would it, for children to be excluded with, with no explicit statement of this. Robert Lethem um, I was reading through one of his works, and he made a statement that really uh, stung me as a Baptist. And it stuck with me. And I began to ponder it and think about it some more. And here's what, here's what Robert Lethem said that really stung me uh, in my early days as a Baptist. He said, if infants are debarred from the covenant sign in the New Testament after receiving it in the Old Testament then Pentecost would have been the greatest occasion of mass excommunication in history. What he's saying is, in the Old Testament, children were given the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And as we come into the new, if the children are no longer there, then Pentecost was an excommunication ceremony for children. And he says, he says is that the case? Was Pentecost a mass excommunication ceremony for, for the kids who, who had been in God's covenant community for thousands of years. And of course, I began to see, no, they were not excommunicated. I began to see that the authors of the New Testament just presuppose that the Bible, or presuppose that the children, rather, are still part of God's covenant community. A couple verses that highlight this. Acts chapter 2, 38 and 39 says this, And Peter said to them, so he's talking to this crowd, and the crowd is mainly made up of Jews who become Christians, Jewish Christians, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise, for this promise, is for you and your children. How would these Jewish Christians have heard that? Repent and be baptized. It's promised, you and your children. Would they have said, well, my, my, my children aren't, aren't in the covenant yet. They're not old enough yet. Is that what they would have said? No. They were circumcising their children. They were giving them the sign of the covenant. They would have understood that, yes, my children are going to be baptized. My children are going to, to come forward, and they are part of, of God's covenant community. 
Consider uh, the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul shifts and he starts to address the children in the church. And he says to the children in the church, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you uh, and that you may live long in the land. So Paul is bidding Christians obey in the Lord. He's using covenantal language to the children in the church, assuming they're part of God's covenant people. And he says to them, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you in the land, that you may live long in the land. And what is Paul telling these children at Ephesus? Is he telling these children at Ephesus that you're going to go and live in Israel? No, he's not saying that to them. He's talking um, about the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about what Christ is going to bring. He's talking about all the blessings in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to husbands and wives, and he's, he's giving uh, commands about well, what happens if, if uh, a wife believes and the husband does not believe, and, and should you stay together, and how should that, how should that work? And the Apostle Paul, as he's describing these things, he says that the children of believers are sanctified and holy. There's a difference between the children of unbelievers and the children of un, or the children of believers and the children of unbelievers. Just as it was in the Old Testament, the children of believers were circumcised. They were given the sign of the covenant people of God, and that set them apart from the other nations. In the same way here, he's saying that there's still something special. There's a special status given to children, as it has been for thousands of years, a special status given to children who are members, who are, whose, whose uh, uh, parents, rather, are members of God's covenant. So I ask, and I begin to ask myself, does the New Testament presuppose the inclusion or the exclusion of children? What, what, what is it presupposing here? Do the biblical authors speak as though children of believers are still part of God's covenant community? Or do they speak as though the children were excommunicated at Pentecost? And I began to see that, no, I think that it's presupposing the inclusion of children. And that was a radical idea for me at the time um, as, as a Baptist. This language of household, going back and looking at our text, you know, the whole household being baptized, again, that's very, very Abrahamic. That's very, um, uh, in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 17, what did God say to Abraham? He said, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring. And he commanded uh, Abraham to be circumcised, and then Abraham was to circumcise his, his children. Uh, circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. But what did circumcision represent? What did it mean? What, did it, what, what was the purpose of it? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 4.11 what the purpose of circumcision was. He said, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. That's what it meant. That's what circumcision 
men. So Abraham is circumcised as a believer. He's, he's, he's a uh, mature believer. The sacrament was a, a seal of Christ's righteousness that he had by faith. But then what was Abraham to do? Give that sign to his children. And they were to give the sign to their children. And they were to give the sign to their children. And so on and so forth. And so um, Abraham could say, as Joshua will say later on, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that baptism replaces <coughs> circumcision. Baptism replaces it. As the uh, Old Covenant, people circumcised. That was the sign of the covenant. Now it's being replaced in the New Testament by baptism. He mentions this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And all of this, I think, is evidence that baptism is not merely for believers, but it's for believers and their children. But as a Baptist, I believed that it was believers only. Believers only. But then I started to wonder, where do I see the only in Scripture? Where does the Bible tell me only? Where is the onlyism? Yes, believers get baptized. Everybody agrees on that. Whenever we, we walk through the book of Acts or the Gospels and believers are making a profession of faith and getting baptized, everybody says amen. But where the disagreement becomes is when someone says only. Where is the only coming from? And is the only there? And I began to see that as I searched the scriptures, I found no evidence of the only. But around every corner, I found it presupposed that the children of believers are still included in the covenant as they have always been for thousands and thousands of years. And that's precisely what the Reformed creeds and confessions and catechisms have, have taught. So, for example... The Belgian Confession, Article 34, says we believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And then it goes on and it says, And truly, Christ has shed his blood no less for washing the little children of believers than he did for adults. He washed the little children of believers. Heidelberg Catechism 74 says, Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. The Canons of Dort also says, the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children. We ought not to doubt the election and salvation of our children. And that's what the Reformed churches have believed um, historically and confessed historically. And in Article 41 of the URC, Book of Church Order, uh, it says, The covenant of God shall be signified and sealed to the children of confessing members who are in good standing through holy baptism, administered by the minister of the word in a service of corporate worship 
with the use of appropriate liturgical forms, the consistory shall properly supervise the administration of the sacrament, which shall be administered as soon as feasible. In other words, it mustn't be delayed, but um, giving our due diligence, we, we must baptize our covenant children, bringing them to the Lord as soon as it is feasible. And this changes the way that you view children. It changed the way that I viewed children. As I went from a Baptist pastor to a Reformed pastor, I, you know, as a Baptist pastor, I looked at my children and I said, well, they're not Christians. They're outside of God's covenant community. Uh, they are living in darkness. They are born in sin, which is, of course, is true still. But I viewed them as someone outside of God's covenant community. I, I, I viewed them as somebody who, who were not Christian. I, I viewed them as someone who uh, did not have the Holy Spirit. I viewed them as someone who is in darkness and they need desperately to be born again, and maybe that'll happen when they're 15. And that was kind of the, the outlook of, of, of a Baptist. And as I became a Reformed pastor, I, I began to see, well, no, my, my children are Christians. My children are part of God's covenant community. And you begin to see your children in, in a different light. You're not someone outside who might come in later, but... I don't doubt, I don't doubt your election and salvation. You are part of God's covenant community, and I will address you as part of God's covenant covenant community, not hoping one day that you'll come in, but realizing you're already in. And yes, we tell our children to repent and believe, but we tell ourselves that, don't we, every day. I need to repent and believe, and we exhort our children to do the same. This different view of children is evidence in the Reformed tradition as well. I have a few examples of some people in, uh, in the Reformed uh, tradition and some of the Puritans, how they viewed children. Uh, Herman Witsius, for example, he said, There is no middle ground. Those not in Christ belong to Satan. Those in Christ are baptized into Christ and therefore have, have fellowship in and with the church. They therefore have remission of sin, which is the first thing that flows from the enjoyment of the covenant of grace. So in Witsius' mind, there's, there's no question. Our children are Christians, part of the covenant of grace. Thomas Manton said, Infants do not have actual faith in, in terms of a, an actual profession. He says they have, well, he says which begins in knowledge and ends in affiance. But he says they have the seed of faith. They have the habit of faith. They have the inclination of faith. They have the principles of grace in their souls by the secret operation of the Spirit of God, which gives them an interest in Christ. So he says they have the seed of faith, inclination, habits. Thomas Goodwin said, we ought to give covenant children the judgment of charity based upon the promise of God. The judgment of charity. It's the same judgment that we give many believers. If somebody walked in that you didn't know and professed Christ, and, uh, you would give them the judgment of charity. You can't read their heart. You don't have an infallible knowledge of that person. And then the same way with our children, we give them the judgment of charity. Zacharias Ursinus, the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism, said faith is an infant potentially and by inclination, although not actually as in, in adults. Those who are born of godly parents have holiness as to inclination, 
not according to nature, but according to the grace of the covenant. And still further, infants have the Holy Ghost. If infants now have the Holy Ghost, He certainly works in them regeneration, good inclinations, new desires, and other such things as are necessary for their salvation, or He at least supplies them with everything requisite for their baptism. One more example from Henry Bullinger. He said, Children are gods, therefore they have the Spirit of God. Therefore, if they have, the, if they have received the Holy Ghost as we, if they are accounted among the people of God, that who, I pray you, can forbid these to be baptized with water in the name of our Lord. So I, I bring up these Reformers and these Puritans to bring to your attention uh, and to illustrate that this view of children is pervasive in Reformed theology. Our children are covenant children. That's why we call them covenant children. We don't just say children, but they're covenant children. They're children in the covenant with God, given the covenant sign of baptism. We do not doubt their salvation or election, and even in their mother's womb, they hear the voice of their heavenly Father. Just as inside the womb, they hear the voice of their earthly mother. And in a sense, we can affirm a, a kind of believer's baptism almost. Not in the sense that Baptists do. Baptists often speak of believer's baptism as, as a mature person who's making a mature profession. But we view our children as believers. They have the inclination, the habits of faith, the seed of faith in them. And we baptize them. Baptism is a sign and a seal of the righteousness of Christ, the washing away of sin by His blood, the dying and the rising to newness of life. And it's not just for us who profess faith, but it's for our children. Again, our children have the inclination of faith, the seed of faith, the habit of faith, and we give them the judgment of charity. Christ has promised that the gospel uh, belongs to our children. Now, we cannot know infallibly our children's hearts. Sadly, there are some who are like Esau. Esau was born into the covenant, but he left. Sadly, there are covenant children who born into the covenant and leave. Because they were, while they were in the covenant, they were not of the covenant, if that makes sense. But we cling to the promise of Christ. And not only has God promised, not only do we have God's promise, but we see His usual way of working is the saving of covenant children when they are very young, perhaps even when they're in their mother's womb. We saw John the Baptist. He's born again in his mother's womb. We see that as not only a possibility of God doing, but we see that His ordinary way is the saving of covenant children even as they are young. And so we see our, ch our children as Christians. We call them Christians because they are Christians. Christ died for them as much as he has for us. When I was a, a Baptist pastor, um, I, I could sense a tension in the way that I spoke with children. So when my oldest, I think he was five at the time, he saw someone being baptized. And he said, well, I want to I I get baptized. And of course, in the Baptist world, you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe when you're eight, or maybe when you're 10 or 11, or whatever that uh, magic number is that everyone's looking for in the Baptist world. Some are even saying upwards of 18. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a debated thing, but I was thinking, well, not yet. We, you know, we have to make sure. We don't know. Are you really born again? Are you this? Are you that? 
And I began to see that was actually doing damage, I think. Because uh, a week later, after we had this conversation and he wanted to get baptized, I said, well, I don't know. i got to see if you're a, a really Christian, if you really believe, if you're really born again, etc. About a week later, we were reading Acts and I uh, was talking about faith in Christ. And I said, do you have faith in Christ? And he said, I don't know. He, he thought he did. And then I said, well, I wasn't so sure about it. So he's thinking, well, if, if I thought I had faith, you're telling me I don't have faith, and I don't know what it is. So he said, maybe when I, when I get older, I'll believe or something. I have no, no idea. And I was thinking, I was damaging his confidence. I was damaging his identity as a Christian. And I was damaging his faith. Because he was now saying, well, here I thought I was a believer. And you're telling me I'm not. Here I thought I was following Christ, and you're shedding doubt and saying, well, we have to be sure, we don't know, and maybe this is a false profession, and, and it, it, it clouded him with doubts and anxieties to where he was saying, well, I don't even know what's going on. He didn't hear the whole time I was talking to a Christian, someone who had the Holy Spirit, someone who was in Christ and in covenant with Christ, and here I was sowing doubts and confusion. Here I was keeping the little ones from Christ. So as we close, let's uh, uh, re-examine our text with Lydia's conversion here. Um, Lydia uh, speaks about how she's a seller of purple um, cloth. She's from the city of Thyatira. Jesus will mention Thyatira later on in the book of Re Revelation. And um, she was probably earlier on part of a trade guild. Um, in a lot of the cities that Jesus is writing to in the book of Revelation, he's writing to, to Christians who are being persecuted. Some were living in wealthy cities and they were dirt poor. Because in order to um, have uh, a business that's expanding, you had to be, to be part of a trade guild. The trade guild would meet in a pagan temple, and you would meet together maybe in the temple of Artemis or whatever city you were in. You would eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Um, after you had a, had a celebration of a false god, there would be cult prostitutes that would be involved. It was a nasty affair, and Christians wouldn't partake in it. And if you didn't partake in it, your business didn't do well. Maybe it even went under. So this is some of the things that are going to be surrounding Lydia, seller of purple clothes, now going back as a Christian... It's interesting, here she is listening to Paul, and it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. This is irresistible grace. This is um, the effectual calling of God, where instead of it landing on just deaf ears, on a, on a dead heart, God opened her heart, so that as she heard the message of Paul, it took deep root in her heart, and she was baptized. And think about what the baptism meant to Lydia herself. Think about what sacraments mean in general. I mean, um, uh, in the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life was a sacrament. In the Covenant with Noah, the rainbow is a sacrament. And so th think about Noah. He comes off the ark. He sees rain for the very first time. How scared would he have been? Last time he saw rain in the thunderstorm, everybody drowned. And here he is getting off the ark, and it's raining, and it's beginning to storm, and what does he see? He sees the rainbow. And what's the rainbow? It's God's promise. God's promise signed to, to him, I will never flood the earth again. And baptism is a sign of God's promise to those who receive it. 
that he's saying, I washed your sins away. I am your God. You are my people. I've washed you with the blood of Christ and the Spirit of our God. And it's a naming ceremony where you're, you're named, you're baptized into the name of the triune God. You have a new name, as it were. You're in His family. You've been adopted. And so Lydia received this great sign, and then she got her whole household baptized. Now, we're not, we're not told how many were in her household. We don't know if she had a vibrant household, ten people. We don't know if it was a small uh, household of four people. We have no idea. But uh, her whole household is getting baptized. That would have included children. That would have included infants. Just as Christ took the little infants in his arms when he was on earth and he blessed them, so too the Lord takes Little children of believers, he gives them a new name, he washes them of sin, he gives them the Holy Spirit, and he says, I love you. One of the liturgies that's used by the French Reformed Church when they baptize an infant, these are the words they read when they baptize an infant. At your baptism, God tells you that for you, Jesus came into the world For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he suffered the darkness of Calvary and cried out last, it is finished. For you, he triumphed over death and rose to newness of life. For you, he ascended to reign at God's right hand. All this he did for you before you knew anything of it. And so the word of Scripture is fulfilled. We love because God first loved us. Amen. Well, let's respond to God's word singing Psalm 78.